Christina Raya, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking It, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work to get seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are continuing our craft mini-series, today talking to Edward Hong to discuss voice acting. Before we dive in, we do want to plug our new free monthly newsletter, which you can find at the bottom of breakingoutpod.com. Definitely go get in on that. Uh, it will not only remind you when new episodes have come out, but it will also give you a little spark of creative inspiration uh, every single month. But uh, with that, hello, Edward. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your craft is that we're here to talk about today? Yes. In a nutshell, I'm a film, TV, commercial, theater, and voiceover actor. I've been acting in Los Angeles specifically for 12 years now. Feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Voiceover has been a relatively new venture. It's, I've been doing this professionally for about three to four years now. Uh, with the pandemic, the focus to the increase to focus on uh, voiceover increased dramatically uh, because of how pandemic has shifted how the industry was working. And since then, voiceover has become a very dominant aspect of my life. I mean, like the, all the other as, uh, career aspects are still very much there. But voiceover, I think it just shows you that there's so many more opportunities than I've ever imagined than in television, film, and commercials and whatnot. So yeah, and other than that, I am the owner of Three Cats. I have an obsession with Cinnabons, <laughs> and I am the founder of the PGM VO List, which we will talk about shortly. Yes. It's a great segue, because that was my next question. So please tell us a little bit more about the PGM VO List. The, the PGM VO List started out actually at this point almost exactly two years ago right around the height of the pandemic when it first started it came a month after like what sparked it off was the global black lives matter movement and the george floyd murder and the conversations that was happening in our lives and in the entertainment industry about representation about proper and authentic representation and and just like the for lack of a better word, inj the injustices and the inaccuracies in what we see in entertainment. And so it got to the point that it started being discussed in the voiceover community, which was just like having the right actors represent the characters that they were portraying. One of the most famous ones being like Apu from Simpsons, uh, mm -hmm. Cleveland from America, who's a family guy, uh, and having like not white actors voice these characters, but like the, the right actors do these things. And so the database came up because there was just, it was, it would, the questions were flying out. I was like, well, okay, if that's the case, where do we find so-and-so actor? And I've always found that question a little silly because I knew most of these actors. I knew, okay, if mm -hmm. I wanted, like, if you wanted a black actor or an indigenous actor or an Asian actor, it was like, I knew them. But it was always interesting when white people were like, I don't know them. Who are they? I, they don't exist. And so <laughs> the idea was just to create this database, which was at the time just a Google Excel sheet. I had no idea what the heck I was doing. I was just like, here's a Google Excel sheet. Here's some stuff to fill out. And it was open sourced. It was like anyone could fill it out at any time. So I just put it out there on Twitter. And all of a sudden, I think, because the conversation conversation about representation was so so hot that the data that's just the google excel link just got shared like crazy it was just like all over the place people were just putting their information in and then 
about a week or two later, my agency, my voiceover agency, Atlas Talent, got really involved in it. They're like, hey, you know what? Let's send this out to all the casting offices and production people we know. And so it got its start from there. And then it it I felt like it just like escalated like each time where it's like like after it started like six months and then kind of like simmered down a bit. And then like 2021, it just picked right back up again because when I upgraded it, I changed from Google Excel to Airtable. And then when I had other team members uh, brought on board because they were like passionate about what I was doing, that it just started like next thing we know, we just started getting more and more companies and more and more people to get on board with it. So where we are now, two years later, we have over over 2,000 global majority actors. I'll get into that. But global majority, basically, global majority people basically means people of color. Uh, It's a new term to say that as opposed to having people of color which still centralizes white as the universal standard, but global majority mm-hmm. gets rid of that. Uh, there's 2,000 people who are on the database, and we have over 250 production companies, casting directors, and talent agents who use it. Most recently, the last week alone, we had Pixar and Lucasfilm come on board to use the wow. database. That's awesome. And that is where we are now. That's amazing. Wow, congratulations. So yeah. is there... Thank you. Yeah, definitely. So it started as just like an open source. Add your name if you're you know, a, a person in this industry who fits these demographics. Is there any level of like curation now? Like is it... What, what, are, what are you doing beyond just like having this list? Like are there profiles? Are there plans for profiles? Like what, what's next for this organizational system? Yes, especially when once we got into Airtable and then once we noticed how many companies were jumping on board, we weren't exactly shunning away people who like, we're not, this list is not just for people who are veterans of that. Like we do welcome people who are just starting out of industry, but there is a certain criteria where it's like, you have to have some idea what this industry is. Like if you're just like, hey, I'm curious about voiceover and I'll just put myself in. I'm like, no, you have to have some idea like, you know, having a website, having a demo reel, uh, not putting your Instagram handle as your website. Like, you know, these were the basic oh, well, yeah. criteria. <laughs> and then I would have the the ones that I would just flat out reject. Like, I, like there was one person who was like, they they put their ethnicity as indigenous, but then their nationality was white. They just put Caucasian. And I'm like, okay, I think you missed <laughs> the point in this. <laughs> And so, because the thing is, like, I made it very clear, it's like, you know, this is not for white European actors. And I know, yes, uh, I've had many, many criticisms and uh, lashes, lash outs and complaints on social media, how this list is racist. You know, it's like, you know, you're excluding Mm, white people. And I would say a real shame. I would say it's not racist because number one, you that's not what that word means. Right. Because it's it is designed to give a you know spotlight on folks that are usually underrepresented. Yeah, and excluded. And yeah. so, you know, you wouldn't say the same thing for women initiatives or LGBTQ initiatives. That's their own specific communities. So if a man I mean, goes they like, do. oh, I feel <laughs> I mean, excluded do, from yeah. this women only initiative. I'm like, well, that's because women are underrepresented in the film industry. And this is supposed to give them the spotlight. So you're fine. You're honestly <laughs> fine. And that's what I would tell anyone who feels like they're feeling left. out. I'm like, no, honestly, you guys are fine. And yes, we're getting all these companies. And it's great that all these companies are you know, curious about us and they're requesting access to the database. 
that that doesn't replace that does not replace hard work. It doesn't replace doing classes, workshops, networking. Just because you're in this database doesn't mean you have like you're you're set. Like oh yeah, I'm gonna get all these additions from all these companies out. Not all the time. A lot of these people in the database, some like sometimes they don't get anything because it's like they either don't have the right materials or they just you know when they listen to their demo reels, it's like yeah, this person's not anywhere ready yet. They know the technical uh, the do house and they have training, but it does take a while as we know as artists that, you know, not all of us are ready yet. So mm-hmm. that's, that's been the journey of it. And where we continue forward is that now we provide free workshops for all our participants. We are looking, so we are applying for grants and just, I'm just saying this here, although, you know, we'll officially say it when it comes out, we are in the process of becoming a nonprofit organization. So that is the next step forward in terms of where it is. So there's me, there's five other people around the world that comprise the team of the PGM VO list. And so we have collaborated with the SAG after organization with QueerVox, which is uh, the LGBTQ voiceover database, as well as they have their own nonprofit organization. And so we are we collaborate with them and like other organizations like Voices of Color to see how we can make things accessible for more like underrepresented voiceover actors. So it mm-hmm. becomes more of a not just us, but a community based initiative to see how we can make things more accessible and better for all. That's amazing. That's Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking news. Um, well, so I'm glad that once again, you've given me an incredible segue. So you're offering workshops now. You were talking about how important training is. So I'm curious for you as someone who's acted professionally for 12 years and presumably did a lot of training before and during that, have you taken voiceover specific classes? And can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how developing that muscle maybe was a little bit different or not? Yes, I do think taking voiceover specific classes is important. I do also believe that in terms of what's uh, a transition from that works well is that if you especially come from a theater based background, it does lend itself easier to voiceover because especially for animated projects, they encourage actors to kind of go big, go like, you know, Mm, have fun with it and just go out there. And while uh, typically for American on camera acting, they tend to be very naturalized like very mumblecore you you see it like you know very mm-hmm, like naturalized yeah. ncis acting or like very mumble <laughs> indie kind of acting which works great for that format but it doesn't work all the time for voiceover because you have to mm-hmm. be more than that so anyone who comes from like a really long theater background you're actually in the ballpark to do voiceover great now, you do have to keep in mind that, you know, voiceover, just like any other type of acting, there's like a million types of genres, like, and some of them just stick with that genre, like some of them just do like uh, infomercials or commercial acting, voiceover acting, or they do even like the text to speech things or like, you know, when they're like, you know, press, press one, if you want to talk to this press two, there's someone doing that voiceover and they're getting paid. I've done that it. before. Yeah. <laughs> And so there's a there's sp- a real estate agency in Florida that yeah, it's has a, my voice in their voiceover machine. It's a particular skill set. It's like you know, there's a skill set for that. There's a skill set for dubbing. There's a skill set for looping, which is like you know, anytime you watch a movie, all the little random like background noises. That's people doing voiceover stuff to do mm-hmm. that. And there's a skill set for that as well. And so I would say 
you have to look into what are you most passionate about? Like if you're passionate about, oh man, I want to voice like cartoons and all that kind of stuff, then you should, it is important to take cart like animation specific voiceover classes. So you know, what kind of, what do you, you know, what are you getting at? And like, when you do a slate, what's a proper slate or, you know, when you do a uh, takes, how many takes should you do and how, you know, how should, how varied should each, each take be. And also mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, what's like proper microphone recording. Cause like you have to be very conscious that you don't blow out your sound. You also have to be very conscious not to make sure your sound isn't too muted. So there are so many technical aspects that it is very important that actors do know about these things. And the good thing is like, if you're a SAG after member, SAG after foundation does provide free classes on technical workshops like that. So if you want to learn how to edit your audition or you're learning about how to do audiobooks, SAG after uh, does offer free resources on there, which is which is wonderful. But then also then there's also a bunch of other classes like voiceover camp or like voicecaster. They offer classes and workshops how to teach you and all of that. So I always encourage actors that if you don't know, you know what classes. If you you're wondering if you should take classes, yes, you should take classes at the very least. So for you then coming, transitioning out of film and, and theater and television, uh, what, what were some things that maybe surprised you about like training for this new medium? Like, were there things that you found you were really good at? Like the, the theater thing you were talking about, yeah. were there things you were like, Oh, I didn't even realize I needed to think about that. Yeah. When it came to the theater thing, it worked well with a lot of these uh, animated animation or video game projects where it's like, okay so one addition i literally just got today which is like it's where a video game and you're like a fire lord dragon and so it's just mm -hmm. like have a menacing voice but it doesn't tell you like deep register or higher it's just like ditching out of like possibly thousands of people to see you know if one of you get the role the one area that's still you know very very tricky for me is commercial voiceover acting because it requires a very specific tone of voice where it's naturalized, but it still needs to sell the product, but it still needs to be friendly, but it can't sound like a spokesperson. So there's all these different <laughs> things where I'm like, I, you know, I, I, I have not mastered that yet. And it's not really a focus of mine. Commercial on camera acting is a different story for me. Like a lot of these commercial editions is just like stare at the board and be amazed by this burger that just floated in midair. And that's your audition. Like you <laughs> stare at a burger for five seconds and they're like, cool, thank you. And then if you get a cool, you get potentially, if it's a national that runs well, woohoo, like 30 to $40,000 over four months. That's one, mm -hmm. that's like the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, they don't even air the commercial. So I think the theater world lend itself well to a lot of the editions I get, which is the cartoons, the animated, the video games. And recently a lot of actually the on-camera experience, like the more natural experience lends itself well to what's been exploding nowadays, which is dubbing because there's a, like Disney plus and Netflix, especially Disney. They're going cuckoo over uh, uh, cocoa over cuckoo pups over dubbing <laughs> and buying international content. And therefore, they're uh, they want English dubbing to happen for all these things, as well as the all the other languages. So it's becoming more and more popular that dubbing is becoming a mainstay in voiceover to the point that SAG-AFTRA just created a dubbing department last year mm -hmm. to recognize that oh, 
this is more popular than we thought. Huh? Yeah. So you, you and you've done uh, dubbing for is it? Did you do dubbing for Squid Game? Squid is that right? Game. Yes, I did. So tell us about that process. How how did that audition work? How do you prepare differently for a uh, dub where you're sort of giving lending your voice to someone else's existing performance? So the hilarious thing about dubbing is whenever you do a dub project, you don't know what characters you're dubbing or even what lines you're doing until you show up at the studio. <laughs> oh, wow. You gotta, be oh a master, you gotta be a master of cold reading because, and people, I always wow. ask, why can't we get the materials in advance? And there's always a strict NDA policy. So they never want to mm. give that out to the actors. You just have to go there and just, you know, do your best. So <laughs> when I did Squid Game, like I've done a bunch of other like Korean drama dose before that. It was just like any other dub. Like, I didn't think anything much of it, and neither did the director. It was just like another Netflix project. And so when I auditioned for I auditioned for one of the side characters, which is the one I ended up doing, which was, uh, so when I, sh when I showed up at the studio to record it, like, I noticed that, oh, this is interesting. They haven't even finished filming this show yet. We saw all the green screen, and, you know, you saw all, like, you know, wow. the rough footage, and it's not done yet. And uh, we're like, oh, that's interesting. They're like, yeah, Netflix is really trying to make this like a big thing. So I'm like, okay, so Netflix definitely wants to pay attention. They want the world to pay attention to this. They must see something in this. So as we were like recording and seeing, you know, as we know, all the terrible games that was happening, I was like, I have a feeling, especially where we are right now in the pandemic, this is going to hit something. I don't know what it is. It's going to do something. Hmm. And we were right. I mean, like, I think at that point, people, you know, Hollywood was like, let's have more lighthearted content like Ted Lasso and that kind of thing. And then Squid Game, give you the most depressing, <laughs> you know, look at the world and how socioeconomic crises have led people to do the most desperate things possible. And it exploded like crazy. And so that was that project specifically made the world pay attention to dubbing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, we knew about dubbing through, let's say, you know, if you were into anime, like, you know, you know about the dubbers there. But that's like a very niche market. Squid Game made dubbing into a national conversation where, like, we were being interviewed, like, the dubbing actors were being interviewed by Huffington Post, NBC, ABC, uh, Entertainment Tonight. It was crazy. Like and it got to the point that the studio had to step in and be like, "Hey, no more interviews until we have an idea what the hell's happening." Because, you know, sometimes it was not the actors' fault. They would say things that it wasn't like a diss towards English dubbing. They were just saying how difficult it is to like maintain the Korean authenticity to the English language. And the fans on Twitter like took that as a sign. It's like, oh, they're saying that the English dubbing sucks. So I remember this. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it just kind of like went out of control there. As you know, we all know with social media, you say one thing that you know wasn't supposed to be harmful at all, and then just like woohoo, it goes to somewhere else. And so I saw it as a yes, it was terrible, but it was a sign that people were actually paying attention to English dubbing. And mm -hmm. so I think because of that, Netflix went even harder. And bought a lot more content, not only from Korea, but from all over the world. And same with like Disney is doing a catch-up game right now this year. And so I think it's just like they're taking it more seriously and they're putting a lot more money and resources to make sure that the acting is good, that the lip sync is good and everything, you know, it feels like you're watching it like as if it was the original product itself, 
but in English or whatever language that you were watching it. It's funny because I didn't really pay much attention to dubbing before, but uh, my mom, she, growing up, we would always watch Bollywood movies. And, and so we would watch with like the subtitles on and dubbing wasn't ever really an option there. But now she watches everything with dubbing and with subtitles on. And so she watched all Squid Game with, with the dubbing on. And we started talking about the show even before that kind of blew up as a conversation. And then I was reading your posts about it and it was so interesting, uh, particularly the craft piece of it, of like how you have to match lips, even though you're speaking a totally different language. Yeah. And so could you talk about that a little? Like yeah. how how does that work on the translation side and on the performance side? So there are several processes to get through that. So it's like, okay, so they have to translate it first, like the raw translation, of the literal translation of what the original language is to whatever language you're uh, going into. So let's say, so we'll start with English. So you translate to English. That's the translator's job. And then there's the adapter job. And the adapter's job is probably, I would say the hardest job because it's like, you take the translated thing and then you look at the, the mouth flaps of the actors and you have to match it. So sometimes they change the words so they can match what's going on. And a lot of times what gets sacrificed is accuracy of language. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you see people complaining all night, like that's not that's not accurate at all. Why would that person say that in the English dub? It's because it was changed to make the mouth flap match happen better. And so there's a lot of times where that gets sacrificed. Now, what I've been advocating for is, uh, and I've been a privileged to have some opportunities is that I do advocate for more people behind the scenes as the adapters, as the directors of these English dubs. Because let's say if it's a Korean drama and the director, the ADR director is Korean, they can look at something that's adapted dialogue and they're like, okay, that's not right at all. Like not even close. So let me try to rewrite that to make it more in line with what the original act, uh, actor is saying. Mm -hmm. Like I was able to earlier this year direct a Disney Plus show, which will come out soon. The feedback I got from a lot of actors I hired and all of them were career or was to understood the language and was like, okay, this is, you know, that's not right. We'll change this or keeping the mannerisms of how they talked because a lot of times like I see it not just with like you know Asian shows but like let's say and let's say an Italian show where you know Italian people act very differently from American people it's a culture it's like it's very different so I remember seeing a dub scene where like they were on a beach and there's all these bros and they're all Italian bros but the English dubbing made them sound like you know like Californian surfer bros and that's mm -hmm. not how Italian men act so it was very jarring to see the animated, like, you know, they're being very animated, but the English dub was like, yeah, bro, what's, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> terrible dubbing. So it's not just like ethnicity, which, but it, which is also important, but it's also just culture too, that I think mm -hmm. it's like a lot of times the directors or they don't pay attention to the, you know, the mannerisms of how each country talks and be very particular about that. And also get actors that understand that well, because like I said, there's no preparing for dubbing. You're just you're just being thrown into it. Now, if mm -hmm. we were prepared for, sure, you know, we could get actors who don't understand the culture necessarily to do it. 
But if you get an actor who knows the language, who knows the culture, uh, and you have them dub, they have a much higher chance of getting it within a short period of time. And so I think that's been my thing with, especially with dubbing. And especially like there's a lot more Bollywood films that's actually becoming dubbed into English because now they're mm-hmm. taking now. I think like what Hollywood is paying attention. There was a recent movie. They're like, oh, maybe people do like Bollywood. It was the RRR movie that just kind of like came out of nowhere. Yeah. And just people are like, whoa, Bollywood movies are awesome. I'm like, yeah, they've always been awesome. You're only yeah. just paying attention to it now. So with that being said, they are looking to English dubbing for these uh, Bollywood South Asian projects. And so I think that's where it's like having the right actors is essential because they understand the nuances of how these actors talk and then just try to see if they can replicate that into English, which sometimes it doesn't work because English is a limited language and it doesn't have the same, let's say, the beauty of like French or it doesn't have the same nuances of like Mandarin or or like Korean. Like it just sometimes it just doesn't work out like that. But mm-hmm. you you do the best you can when you understand it. I'm curious from a from like a performance perspective, when you're dubbing, are you just really trying to match the performance of that particular actor, or do you try to bring any of your own choices to it? Do you have the ability to do that? For the most part, your job is to honor the original actor's performance. You're not trying to, it's kind of like the best in the theater way, in the theater performance comparison. It's like you're the understudy. Your okay. your job is to honor the original actor in terms of even like as technical as the steps, like everything they do, you do it as well. So that when, you know, if someone, if they're watching your performance, they're not going to be thrown off by like, if you had to step in last minute because the main actor got sick, they're not going to be like, oh, what's going on right here? And you're still honoring that. And you're not like messing up, like in terms of your positioning so that the light person has to like shine a spotlight you at this moment, at this time right here, it all works out. Same thing with dubbing. You do your best to match it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's like, you know, they have, you have to exactly style like a person. Sometimes mm-hmm. like, you know, companies really do care about that. Like they care about that. The main, main lead sounds exactly like the original actor. Uh, but the thing is like, you know, everyone's voice is always different, no matter how similar it could be. So I think more importantly than the vocal match is to have the performance like mirror that. Like if mm-hmm. someone is a very high strung neurotic person, you want an actor who can like match that as opposed to someone who can't do that. Sure. And so when I watch it, I think like, especially for live action dubbing, like it is very imperative for all dubbing actors to pay attention to the body movements and like the posture and like, you know, are their eyebrows up the whole time? Are their eyes like bulging out the entire time? That tells you where that actor is at that current moment. So you, you as the actor replicate that. So if it's like, okay, his eyes are bulging. So then you'd be like, okay, he's probably like wired out. So you're going to give a wired out performance. Um, and then the director can like modulate that. Sometimes the director might have a very bold choice. They'd be like, you know what? Let's go a little crazier. Let's go a little this. Like I know with one of the pro- the projects that I did, the main lead uh, male actor had no acting range whatsoever, which was very frustrating for the dubbing actor because it just sounds like a monotonous drill, droll tone the whole time, which 
was not intentional because the original actor has never acted before. He's a he's a pop mm. star. So, you know, acting that was his very first acting gig, which woohoo, what a great privilege. But <laughs> in terms of the dubbing actor, I, you know, at some point I was like, you know what? Give me a little more. Like just a little more, but not too much because we can't betray the facial expressions. Like it's not that animated. Sure. So you have to you can give a little more without making too much that it wouldn't make sense that it would come out of someone's mouth and facial features like that. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's like exercising a very different creative muscle oh, yeah. from Absolutely. acting on your own. Yeah. Do you do the motions sometimes or like do the bugging All eye to like All get in that it place? Helps yeah. so much. Like even like to the point, like if my character is like showering in a scene, I'll, I'll you know, I'll put my hand up. So it just, so then just it, it can hopefully like translate into the microphone that if I'm showering, like scrubbing my head and like really focusing on, I'll just do that. Like, and then just like, like I'm scratching something because like the character is scratching something in his head or like if it's an action scene where the character is in a high tense situation, he's pointing a gun at someone, I'll point my fingers at someone like this and be like, and, and then like really tense my muscles so that the tenseness of my body will translate into the microphone as well. So I would, I also encourage all my actors to go as physical as possible. Some things don't, you don't have to do, like you don't have to exactly jump up and down or like you don't have to clap because we don't need any of that. No clapping because you already have the clap sound effect in the original audio. But if it's like, uh, oh yeah, there's one where you know, they're all part of a boot camp, So they were all doing pushups. I didn't have the actors actually do pushups, but it's like do all the heavy breathing that comes with pushups. Like, you know, mm. uh, 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 one, uh, uh, like do all of that so that it actually kind of like tricks your body and your mind to think you actually are doing push-ups because you're hyperventilating. You're like, you know, doing all these breaths. So it lends itself to the vocal performance. And a lot of times, you know, all of the added efforts makes it feel more real because if you don't have any of it, it feels very static, which is why like watching dubbing an anime can be challenging because anime does not have a lot of vocal efforts because it's not live action it's like you know it's just drawn sure. that mm -hmm. kind of thing and a lot of times that that kind of projects where they don't have those attention so when you do the english dubbing it can feel very static like you're just listening to it you're like oh it seems like it, it just feels static sometimes they will challenge that and be like let's add some more efforts so that it feels like a little bit more naturalized which i noticed is the more recent trend in terms of making feel mm -hmm. like, you know, not so weird when you're watching something dubbed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. How do you know how much of like production sound ends up having to get re-recorded so that like fully matches? Because I imagine, uh, you know, it, it's it's not like all sound in a movie is made later or is dialogue. So like, is there like a separate fully artist team that basically has to recreate production sound to go along with dubbing? Do you know? Uh, we, in dubbing, they call that M&E, which is music and effects. And uh, most of those, for the most part, they are kept in. Like the original is kept in for that. And mm. depending on the studio and the network, they'll have the actor, the dubbing actor actually do that. So if it's like a fight scene where it's like you're getting punched or, you know, you're like throwing someone over, they're going to have you do that. They're going to have you because it's like oh, wow. how you're grunting will sound differently than the original actor mm -hmm. doing a grunt. So they're like, okay. But sometimes they're like, okay, we don't necessarily need the actor. Like if you're like brushing your teeth and you're swallowing water and you're gargling and you're spitting it out, 
you know, we don't have the actor doing that because also it'll be very unhygienic to do that in a sound booth. So you don't have to worry about that. Kissing sound effects, sometimes the actors will have to do it where they have to. And so the weirdest trick to do is just like kiss like your your hand and just get real close to the mic. And then that's <laughs> the kissing sound effect if you're kissing someone. There are projects I've seen where it's like, especially like the more explicit projects where it's like, okay, they will tell the actor if you're auditioning for it, Hey, if you book his project, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to make those sound effects, those explicit noises. So there's always, thankfully, a warning disclaimer if you want to do that kind of project, or if you're not comfortable, that don't don't do it. So those sound effects you do have to make. When it comes to like uh, other things, like uh, like I said, clapping or the punching sound effect, or like you know any other sound effects you hear that's not from like a human mouth, they'll keep that. They'll keep that for the from the original into the English dubbing as well. Yeah, I'm just imagining what a nightmare that must be for the sound editor to try and yeah. make it match oh and not God, sound like crazy. it's being recorded in eight different places. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I've I've edited enough ADR in indie projects to be like never again. Uh, <laughs> so so I'm I'm curious uh, about the audition process because we've been talking about that a little bit and you've mentioned demo reels before. So what is like what what are the differences in the audition process for voiceover from live action self tapes? For the most part, it feels like you're sending it out into the void because there's never <laughs> a feedback. It's you know you just you just tape it you know in your whatever whether your closet or you know if you have a booth and you just record it, edit out any like weird like you know if there's like a lot of like mouth clicks, you edit that out you know and then you make sure you have your slate. You turn it into an MP3 file, you send it to your agent, and then that's it. Like, there's no, like, you know, there's no feedback from the casting director. Like, oh, that was good. Now do that again, but do it do it this way instead. You'll never get that feedback. So you just do it and hope for the best. And if you get a callback, great. And if you get a booking, awesome. More often than not, it's just silence, rejection. Uh, sure. like I can definitely, like, I remember when I did stats for my first three years of voiceover, like I would get an average of, let's say 200 to 250 additions a year for voiceover from my agent. And one year I got one project. The next year I got zero projects. The year after that, I got one project again. 2021 was 19 projects. That was like, wow. Woo! And then, <laughs> uh, Yeah. But then I realized that once you get to the point where like once it starts hitting, the voiceover community is so tiny that this year's work that I've been getting, it's all from people I worked with last year. It's just, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I thought of you. Yeah, yeah, let's have you in for this and that and this and this. And I know that's a case for on camera acting as well. But the industry is just that much tinier in the voiceover community sure. that, you know, once you getting good with a director they're like oh yeah i really liked your performance then they'll just think of you for something else even if it's like oh yeah i just threw you in for like talents person number four and he's just yelling <laughs> all right cool and then you get paid whatever you know rates that is and then you're like cool you didn't have to audition for that you just got it because they thought of you which is always nice when people think of you for these things yeah so that's just what it is it's just you you turn it to mp3 you send it into the void so for a, for when cutting a demo reel, because like I, I've been racking my brain since we booked you for this interview about like, because we've talked about making film reels before, acting, directing yeah. and that kind of thing. 
how do you choose and keep like engaging a solely like audio reel? Oh, how man. do you differentiate between oh. projects? Like, yeah, t- talk talk me through this. Oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> it can be very very daunting for voiceover because it's like once again considering how many genres they are, which means that you have to like make different types of reel. Like, so I just have a sure. character reel, which is because that's basically what I'm focused on. But it's like if you want to do audiobook reel. You have to create an audiobook reel. If you want to do a commercials, you have to do a commercial reel. If you want to just focus on video games, that's actually a specific thing, a video game reel. And people go, well, how do I create this if I never booked any of these projects? You have to, if you're a very good audio engineer, if you have actually like some uh, engineering experience, you can do it on your own, which you can technically do. Like there are ways to learn it on your own. Thanks to YouTube. You know, you can literally self, you know, teach yourself how to do it. Now, if you don't have the patience to do it, which most of us don't because, you know, time and money is that you do have to find like a good demo reel service and they create okay. it for you. So they'll have a consultation with you. They'll see what your voice is like. You're, you know, what are you into? What's your character type and all that. And then they'll prepare you some scripts and they'll be like, hey, do you like these scripts for this? And then you record it and then they'll they'll like edit it for you. And then they'll show and they'll give you the reel and, you know, you send it out to demo agent, you uh, voiceover agents or clients or production companies in the hopes that they will hire you or bring you on board as a talent. So the best demo reel services, unfortunately, are very expensive. Like I can see them. They go up to like a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars for one demo reel. So it is voiceover like career that's why even why we created this database and also the initiative to help out actors not just with workshops but also we look into grants and even doing giveaways so that we give out like 200 or 300 gift cards to Sweetwater or Guitar Center because getting good voiceover equipment is expensive and for a lot of mm-hmm. marginalized communities that is not an option and so like you know when I look into let's say the indigenous community a lot of indigenous community folks do not have access to this kind of equipment because it is not anywhere near something that they even would think that's a viable career option. Because if you think how many, let alone not even voiceover, just on camera roles for indigenous actors, it's tiny. So it's like they're really, you know, for a lot of them, they don't have any reason to do so. But then I always do encourage that, you know, if there is more of us out there, and we are shown that we do have good experience and or good equipment, then there's a reason to hire more. Because if it's like, oh, we are looking for indigenous actors, but we only found like five in SAG-AFTRA. Because it's like, it's such a tiny, tiny uh, force in terms of like, you know, what's out there. So I think a lot of it is just like, it is important to have this equipment, but also like teaching people that there are ways to, providing good auditions and good you know recording experiences uh even if you don't have much in your home as long as you have like pillows and blankets and like you know a decent mic that you can probably buy on ebay for like 50 dollars or 100 dollars, you can make it work and then Mm -hmm. as time gets goes on you can always improve that when you know you're able hopefully be able to book products that pay you the money Totally. So when you say you have like a character reel, for instance, is it a lot of just sort of like single lines of you doing different voices? Like, and it's just sort of a a montage? Is it like you say, this is from this project, and then you do the voice? Like, what is... People think automatically, it's like, oh, 
do like 50 million different voices and put it on your demo reel. From what I'm hearing from companies, especially like Pixar, is that they don't want that. They do want range. They do want, like, you know, if you can do it. But I think they're more interested in, like, what are you as a person? We do want to see your acting range, like, you know, like that kind of thing. The same applies to on-camera acting as well. Like, you know, yes, actors think they're like, oh, I'm going to play this person, and then I'm going to play a clown, and then I'm going to be this, Mm -hmm. you know, which, yeah, sure. You could show you how, you know, wild range you have. But it doesn't help a lot of casting because they don't really get a good sense of who you are. So they do want to see like, okay, okay, this is a dramatic scene. This is a comedy scene. And this is you being like, you know, a gruff lawyer. And this is you being like a lovable dad, you know, like, but it does have a consistent through line of like, what kind of personality are you? The same applies Mm -hmm. to voiceover as well. And just because let's say you can't do impressions and people think voiceover is like, yeah, give me an impression of so-and-so and so-and-so. That's not most voiceover actors. They, you know, for most part, they are terrible impressionists. They cannot do impressions, but they are able to give convincing character performances. And I think more and more animation companies and video games are looking for like, well, who are you? Like, I'm not interested in like, oh, you being like, oh, I can voice like a 10-year-old girl or whatever. Like, you know, they don't want that. They want you to be like, mm-hmm. who are you as a person? And if you have the range of like, oh, if you can sound like, a grandpa great and if you can't sound like a teenager awesome so i see for especially a lot of women identifying actors they have their reels it's like okay this is their normal range like how they sound every day and this is them as a 10 year old girl or this is them as an eight-year-old boy because i do notice that like if a company can hire adult uh female identifying actors to voice boys They'll go for that because if you hire an actual kid, you have to hire a studio teacher and that's expensive. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if they, if they can get a female identifying actor who can do an amazing eight-year-old boy voice, they'll go for that. So that's a tool set to have. Like, how do you sound like an eight-year-old boy? That's, that's a particular skill set that voiceover actors need to learn so that it helps them increase their chances. And so back to your question of character reel, it doesn't necessarily need to be a crazy montage but just enough to show some range, but more of a consistent through line of who that individual is. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, yeah. I imagine it very challenging and irritating sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> F- figuring out, all right, which evil dragon video game guys should I choose for this this moment? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm stuck on that. I can't wait to hear what your evil dragon man is. Um, so you you kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but are there misconceptions from actors in other disciplines, do you think, about the voiceover industry? What are those? Let's dispel them now. Oh, oh man. Uh, many. <laughs> uh, I, now that I've really got into the voiceover industry, like I have noticed that out of all, like, especially on camera, like, if you had to compare on camera and voiceover, the voiceover community is easily more shafted by, like, everyone. Uh, to the point that you see it in the Hollywood movies, too. Like, the most recent example I can think, and I know the voiceover community is very, very, like, passionate about this. They're making a big screen version of the Super Mario Brothers. They're, and Chris Pratt mm, is voicing I know where you're going with this. Mario. <laughs> that was not received well by the voiceover community. That was... Uh, nope. Yeah. It was very... Yeah. It was not pretty for, you know, uh, the voiceover community because, first off... You have the original Mario actor, Charles Martinez, who is still part of the movie, 
but he's additional voices. He's doing the side characters. And everyone's going, you're telling me this guy who's been voicing Mario for like, at this point, 30 years now is now just some side character. And you got Chris Pratt doing Mario. He's going to do an Italian accent. He's going to, that's, that's what he's going to do. Is he actually going to do an Italian accent? Well, I, I forgot. He I just made an announcement. He's confirmed. like, get ready, guys. It'll be a voice like you've never heard before. And I'm, I, I'm really worried about that now. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? Uh, I'm very bad nervous. That I'm now. excited. So, <laughs> I'm mad about it. But like, if he's going to do it, I want to hear a Chris yeah, Italian accent. I, I, so I'm just <laughs> like, okay. So, but then the thing is like, Sometimes celebrity hires can work well, like, you know, when they give so much of themselves and it's a good performance. Like I would say recently, uh, Sonic, the, uh, the Sonic, the Hedgehog, Ben Schwartz did a great performance as Sonic. I did especially like they brought the original Tails actor, uh, uh, Colleen O'Shaughnessy as Tails. And I was great. It was very, very appreciative that they brought a voiceover actor to do that. Idris Elba, you, you can't go wrong with him. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. he was great as Knuckles. So those are the cases where it can work, but I can give you so many other cases where like, oh, that sounded terrible because they don't know how to voice act. They don't know how to give a full Mm -hmm. range to it. And so you can tell by how flat it sounds. And, you know, that's the celebrity hire. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of these movies and even like TV shows are being so bogged by celebrities that they're, they're not looking into these talented voiceover actors who have done it for decades, you know, or longer, and they don't give them that shot. And then they go, well, they're not a name actor. Well, like, well, yeah, you're, they're not a name actor in the bigger world because you don't put them mm-hmm. at that position. It's like the same thing for, sure. we experience it on camera acting for like uh, global majority people of color actors. When people go, oh, there's not enough famous, let's say indigenous actors or Asian actors. I'm like, well, yeah, because you don't give them the opportunity. It's all right. about opportunity. And because the thing is like, they're worried that they're going to lose money. And I always go, well, you're losing money. No, no matter what, like the light year movie that came out that underperformed. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. <laughs> I, yeah. That underperformed tragically. Like it was supposed to get like mm-hmm. 70, $80 million opening, but and it ended up with $50 million with a 200, $200 million budget without marketing. And you had Chris Evans as the main actor. If Chris Evans couldn't sell you the movie, oh man, then it tells you that you know celebrity hires are not something you should look into. The only person maybe people can argue that celebrity hires might work is Tom Cruise, and that might be about it. <laughs> so it's it's really interesting that we're having this conversation right now about craft because I think that's kind of what it comes down to is that a lot of media companies, especially in this day and age, treat making films and TV like a business and not like an art form. But what they're forgetting is that the reason that their business is successful is when the art form is treated well. Yes. And so when they try to skip the line and say, oh, well, this person is famous, so let's just put them in there, not because they're the right choice, but because we think people will buy tickets because of the fame, they forget that the reason this person is famous is because they were in good works of art. Yes. (laughs) And it's like they're the same thing, Hollywood. It's so irritating. What do you think that like we, we as a community of artists as a community of people who watch art like what what do we do when these chris pratt stunt castings get done like how how do we 
train Hollywood to remember that craft and art is as much of a like function of their successful business as, you know, name dropping. I think we're already kind of showing that it's like we just like when I see that, like this is obviously a stunt hire or obviously like, you know, something that wasn't really this is more of a money move is just to not watch it. It's to, to not support. Or if you are going to watch it, like I use other people's accounts when it comes to certain streaming accounts. So it's just like, you know, we all do it. And so it's like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to like actually or pay for it. But then, you know, I also don't want to give it the view on its opening weekend. So then I'll just wait like two months or three months later. And then I'll be like, all right, I'll check it out now. Sure. Because everyone's, you know, everyone's very focused about the opening numbers. So I think Got it. number one is to support what you think is good like if it's indie art form if it's movies like you know i supported a crap out of everything everywhere all at once like i was like mm-hmm. that kind of movie is awesome i've seen it twice in yeah. the theaters and i don't see movies in the theaters anymore it's so good yeah yeah those are the kind of movies where it's like you know the the the, the creativity especially like how you know they have all these great actors but it looks like when they did all the production design, it looked like, you know, someone who was having a field day at like the Kitty Designs, like, you know, making all these yeah. little artwork or like their version of the future, which was just basically like in a van and they put some like <laughs> aluminum foil on themselves. And I'm like, you know, that's great. It just, it's like really bad <laughs> cosplay, but it's awesome. So they committed, they to, committed it. to it. And it's... I think that's what is missing for a lot of these big budget films. Not to say they aren't committed because there's so many people that work on these movies, not to like, you know, shaft on them. But I think it gets lost that, you know, they think that putting all this money into something that with all these special effects is the answer to, you know, making, you know, what will tap into the, what people want. And I think what people want is going to be the creativity of like these, like that kind of movie. Or when we, or when it comes to voiceover, you know, seeing those kind of animated projects that pushes the boundaries of just like you know what is storytelling. So I think it's just supporting that. Like you watch it on TV, you watch it in the theaters, and you put your money into what you think that people should pay attention to. Yeah, I I think that that is important. And yeah. let's zoom out. Uh, I'm just curious now, Edward, to hear from you about like interesting things that you have experienced as an actor both live action and voiceover just like talk to us about acting what are the things that like you nerd out about when you are preparing for a performance what got you into acting like this is the craft episode let's get crafty what got me into acting especially as a kid as a high school i was a excessively emotional kid i had no filter and so i think (laughs) Acting felt like a natural thing to just get into. It was like, oh, there's something I could just kind of go crazy over and it's totally okay <laughs> to do so. Woohoo! So acting was something that I got into in high school and college. And then like, you know, then obviously continued. I go characters uh, that are a little bit more off kilter, that are a little bit like, okay, there's something going on with them. And then just like, you know, especially when they go on crazy journey and paths that, uh, it's fascinating. So for me, the horror genre has always been interesting for me because we see more of that. We see more, you know, you know, like you know, the craziest things possible, and the extremes in, in that kind of format. And so, the horror genre has always been interesting, and dark comedies are always my jam because it's just like I don't necessarily like lighthearted, haha, sitcoms thing. 
because I think life is so much more messy than that, messier than that. So when I see a good dark comedy where it's like you're laughing, ha ha ha, and then like something really tragic happens, and you're like, oh my god, oh, <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. And then some something crazy happens, and you're laughing again, and then you're just thrown into a roller coaster all over the place, which is basically what life is. It's it's a roller coaster. So I think for me, acting has always been kind of a vessel into tapping into that. And it feels great. It feels great to do that. So that's why theater especially has always been my first love. And it will still be my love because it's like I've had the privilege performing in shows, performing uh, five days a week in front of crowds of like 500, 600 people each night. And just like the thrill of just performing like seven to eight shows a week. And not, not knowing if each show will turn out well, if the audience will even like it, if they're going to react to it well, or if they're going to react very viscerally to it, you just never know. And so on-camera acting, voiceover, all of that is awesome and fun. But theater, like if for those who have experienced it, just the thrill of, you know, just putting on the makeup and then just getting ready behind the scenes, hearing the audience come in and then all the the bustle and all the, the 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 murmurs and then it gets quiet and you go on stage and then what's even more fun is when someone completely fucks up their line and you're like oh shit how do i save that person or even better you're the person who fucked up they're like oh shit how do i get myself out of this at that moment you're it's the worst feeling in the world but when you look back at it you're like ah i went through that and that's something that with filming, it's like, yeah, you mess up, you just do another take, you know, that there's that. But when you're on the stage and there's people just staring at you and you mess up that line, and you just kind of stand there for a little bit. And you're like, oh, shit. And then you, some of you, some part of you is like, oh, I hope someone saves me. And then when someone does save you, you're like, oh, you're an angel. You're an absolute <laughs> godsend. Those are the moments I live for. That's what I do miss about it. And so the problem with theater, especially in L.A., is that it is so underpaid. It's it's very hard to do theater because especially mm. now that, you know, with the pandemic, cost of living has gone up. So it's like the idea of doing theater just doesn't seem that appealing. You're going to spend all this time driving. And now, especially what gas prices being like almost $6, what, per gallon? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like yeah. traveling back and forth to rehearsals just... It's becoming more of a privilege. And it's like, even like when people watch Broadway, it's like, how does anyone watch Broadway when all tickets are like $200, $300 at the cheapest? Like, how do you watch yeah. it? How do you possibly you win the lottery? But that's also a privilege because you have to be able to get up, wait yeah. for it, like stand be available, yeah. stand around. Like I won the Hamilton lottery. And the only reason I got that is because they made the app finally because it was too dangerous for people to queue up. Um, so like I eventually on the freaking app finally got it. But like if in most theater performances don't have that kind of infrastructure. So you do just have to stand around and wait for it. Yeah. So. Anyway, back to I go off on tangent again. But the things that we're excited things, about, things that's what we're focused on. Theater is, you know, <laughs> got me into it. Uh, a lot of my uh, training was theater-based, doing a lot of scene study classes. And it's something I still enjoy very much to this day. Uh, voiceover is just another avenue. And I think for actors or for artists, it's like, it's great to have as many avenues as possible. And so recently now, doing directing for Disney Plus shows, I recently 
did casting for some voiceover projects. And so it's great to do other things that's not just acting because there's there's a certain joy in like being able to do the behind the scenes process of like being able to have a say in these matters, especially for me in terms of representation. So like the latest thing I cast was a Vietnamese uh, Sundance film called Micah. And we had 90% of the voiceover cast, the English dubbers, be Vietnamese. And like, you know, one person was like Chinese. So everyone was Asian, but we had 90% representation on it, which like helped the project immensely because when the director who himself was Vietnamese, like if they didn't understand a direction and he would ask, hey, by any chance, do you speak Vietnamese? And they say, yes. Okay, let me give you this direction Vietnamese. And then all of a sudden they would just get it. They would just be like, oh, mm-hmm. it tapped into something very specific and cultural yeah. that way. And then the director was like, ah, there, there it is. I, he was like, I wouldn't have done that, been able to do it as a non-Vietnamese person. <laughs> totally. I was just going to say, since we're talking about that, from the directing side, because we've talked a lot about the acting side, can you speak to any differences in terms of directing voice actors versus on-camera performers? The only experience I have is, in this case, the dubbing thing, where it's like it's a very specific thing, because once again, like we were talking about, you have to honor the original actor's performance. So a lot of it is just like you watch it and then, you know, you see the actor do the thing and tr- and try to guide them so that it matches as best as possible to the original performance. And what I've noticed is that like with a lot of on-camera actors, they get very shy in front of the microphone. Like, you know, it becomes even more muted where to the point I can't even hear what they're saying. And I would have to remind them, hey, this is your kingdom. This is your booth, your world. Like live it, like live in it. Like, you know, really like push yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And I'll let you know when you're being too loud because I don't think there'll ever be a concern. And then there'll be some like theater actors where they're like, all right, all right, all right. You can like, you can tone down the volume (laughs) a little bit, but good. I want that energy. I can just give you, just do a little bit less. It's so much easier for me directing actors to do less than to do more. Because yeah, to do less is just like, yeah, just turn off the faucet just a little bit. And you know, that's good. They have it. But actors who you have to tell them to do more, it kind of feels more challenging because it's like you have to crank it up. Like if they're not that like emotionally available or like, you know, full of like, ah, like this, it's really hard to get them there. It's like, you know, and the thing is like, I also have to be very considerate and careful because I know in the past teachers would be very abusive about like how, you know, like, oh, you're not giving me the traumatic pain. I'll give you trauma. And then they'll do like the most terrible shit. We are not, that's not what we do in like in terms of any kind of acting. So it's just simply, look, if an actor can't get there, you do the best that you can. And then, but do give them a note, but like, hey, this is something I want you to look into. It's just like, you know, like at your own time, at your own pace, like being more emotionally accessible or like being able to be more angry because like sometimes I'll tell actors like, no, this is rage. Like this is like Korean rage. This is not like, oh, I'm mad at you. Kind of like, no, they're like, veins are coming out of their neck they're like they're ready to fight over something really stupid and for people who have never experienced that kind of anger it's like you know hey look into it and if you don't want to look into it because you get very uncomfortable with it that's okay too because then there will be actors i've worked with where it's like they have been like that in their past life maybe you know when they were in their 20s they're like i never want to be there again that's fine Mm -hmm. So I think as a director, you have the responsibility to 
guide the actors to do you know what your vision is but also i think especially in the conversation we're having in this day and age is to acknowledge them as human beings and and you have to be considerate about particular pressure points especially for whether it be for people of color or for women that there are some things that you can't just say like cavalier-esque and be like yeah i'm gonna say it ha 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 this and not realize that you said something very traumatic and so i mm-hmm. think it's just like as it's a and i know you know there's a lot of older white men that complain like oh you you know it's so hard to direct or do comedy these days and i'm like no you just have to be more aware of your world and i think we've been so used to like you know this is the way it's supposed to be where there's no consideration whatsoever. It's all for the arts. Yes. I know the art is important, but in the end, it's like, we're dealing with human beings. And I think thankfully the conversation because of 2020 and with the black lives matter movement, which has gone into all the me too movement and all of that, that the art form is not just about like getting the best performance possible, but getting it within like under with compassion and understanding of everyone involved not just your actors but your crew members treating them well and we've seen like really bad instances of like mismanagement of crew as we've seen with the rust incident so it's just Uh like all these kind of things do come into factor of like as especially me as a director like if i feel like i'm like you know really making an actor uncomfortable i just have to step back and reevaluate i'm like hey all right you know what can i do differently because this is not working let's let's work something out here as opposed to insist that I'm, you know, you're shoving a square peg, square peg into a triangle hole and be like, this will work. This will work. And it's like, no, you have to like, maybe, you know, take a, take a breather and reevaluate what you need to do. That's really important. That's about the collaboration. Like I think a lot of directors consider themselves like dictators of the set. It's like, it's my way or the highway. Like you get mad at the triangle hole, yeah. even though you're the one with the square peg. So I think that's a really a good reminder for everyone. I'm curious now that we're just sort of talking about acting, what, what are your opinions on and what are some misconceptions about method acting? Because I feel like I've read a lot of things about how there are different kinds of method acting and the kinds that we think about are actually not really how it was original. Like, I don't know. What's your opinion on method acting? So unfortunately, I think we were mentioning Jared Leto that pe- people like yeah. Jared Leto has <laughs> ruined think of it. the name of method acting. And I think the method acting that he's doing that you know where it's the crazy kind of acting is specifically the american kind it's the american kind because mm-hmm. method acting when it first started it's not what people think it is it is about like because especially when it was created by uh, like stanislavski you know the the second part that everyone forgets about is imagination it's like you know sometimes if you don't have to physically like make yourself go through it, it's like yes it can work but then he does talk about which everyone forgets. And that's always like the, the forgotten part, which is the what if scenario, which is like, imagine it. You know, let's say if it's that doesn't work, try this way. And I think American actors have gotten so obsessed with just the first part, which is just like, you really got to live through it. You really got to like go through the pain or, you know, become a drug addict and really shove those heroin into your arms, that kind of thing. And like go through all of that. And I don't take any stock into it because I think, number one, it is psychologically damaging. It is physically damaging, especially depending on what you're doing to yourself. And number two, no one's going to care. Like when I saw, especially like all the preparation Jared Leto did for the Joker in like, what was it? The 
Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. He was in there for like 10 minutes. condoms, et cetera, et cetera. He was in it for 10 minutes. And I'm like, I, yeah, I don't see any of what you're talking about. I just see, yeah, you did the joke performance, but you could have easily done that without doing any of that. And I would have still believed that you were a crazy person. Like, you know, you were someone, you know, that nature. And so I think for me, it's like, yes, commitment is important. Like, I don't want you to give me a half-assed performance, but like, the i think it's also a very male thing to do because like viola davis is also a method actor but she never talks about her like oh i did all of this and all of this i think it's a very male tendency to talk about method acting and all the things they do i've never seen a female identifying actor do that i think it's a very heterosexual male thing to do where they just like spread open their legs and be like yeah I pooped on myself. Yeah, like, you know, something ridiculous. <laughs> and so I think, uh, it, number one, method acting is incorrectly uh, mislabeled. Number two, American method acting is terrible and people should stop. And number three, it's a very male thing to do. So for men, you can just shut up about it. Like, let's, even if you're doing all that, <laughs> even let's say you're doing all that crazy stuff, who cares? Like, it's just, it's, you just, in the end, did your performance translate? Like, do we when we watch it, was it a good performance? Good. The end. That's it. And I think it's just like, unfortunately, and I'm guilty of it myself as an actor, we like to expound on like the inner process of acting. And I, I do remember like there was like a moment where Al Pacino said like, you know, someone was complimenting Al on like some performance he did. And it, I'm, I might be mistaken. It was him or some other actor, but basically a very well-esteemed actor. So it was like, he was very like, you know, intense in his focus. And people are like, oh, what were you thinking about? And he was just like, I was just thinking about hot dogs. And I was really hungry. (laughs) And so when I looked at the camera, I was just thinking about hot dogs. I was just like, man, I would really want to go for a hot dog right now. And they're like, really? It looked like you were like so much longing, so much passion, so much like, you know, pain. Yeah, hot dog, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that was kind of mind blowing to me because it's like it doesn't have to be a traumatic like thought like it doesn't have to be like oh let me think of the time my sister passed away I'm like oh please don't do that please don't do that just think about something else you, you can think of you don't even think about puppies dying like that's you don't have to do that either you can just think of something that makes you go oh man something you really long for and just make it work and so I think right I think this day and age you know we, when people say, oh, they're complaining about, oh, so-and-so, or you can't do this, you can't do that. I say it it's a challenge to be more creative. So like with comedy, people say, oh, I can't make, I can't make fun of minorities and women anymore and gay people anymore. Like, okay. But there's plenty of comedy where it's like, has nothing to do with that. Like since the beginning of time, it, like it was always about like, you know, what was always funny was punching up making fun of corporations, making fun of billionaires. That was always funny. There was never, like, that has never stopped. So it's just like, you know, there are, those things can remain timeless and other things you just have to find a way around it. And it means that you weren't able to f- 
find comedy, that means you were just a terrible comedian in the first place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, yeah, I think that a lot of times, especially I think the people who complain the most are the people who are like successful. And what happens when you get successful is that like what oppression means to you looks very different. And so it starts to feel like anytime someone says you can't do something that feels oppressive rather than when you had less and an actual systemic power was bringing you down now it's like i'm above everyone and i still feel oppressed but the magnitude is completely different and actually i'm not being oppressed at all i'm just not allowed to do literally whatever i want anymore and so they think they're fighting the power because they've forgotten what power actually is because they are the power now yep ridiculous people absolutely ridiculous so uh (laughs) final final question uh are there any tips or pieces of advice that we haven't gotten to yet that you can share with fellow aspiring voice acting professionals uh for voice actors especially if you're like you know you're just starting out you have no idea about anything you're like i don't know what to do is that uh there's a great actor d bradley baker he does a lot of great character voices uh he created a blog which is the most extensive research i've ever seen it's called i want to be a voice actor.com and if you just type that in it's just this this amazing blog of like everything you want to know, like, you know, what kind of equipment should I look into? What kind of classes should I go for? What kind of genre should I tackle? Well, uh, any questions you can possibly think, he covered it. And it's free. It's a completely free resource for anyone to use. So anytime people are like, oh, where do I start? Check out the website. And then, you know, it's a really long read. It'll probably take you days to go through everything. But that just means D did a great job in covering all of the essentials. So. I want to be a voice actor.com, which is also very easy to remember. I want to be a voice actor.com. <laughs> and then I tell actors to go for that. And then also from there to always look into opportunities when it comes to training, uh, connect with your fellow colleagues. Um, there's other great, like, you know, especially for voice actors, Discord has become like their main communication method. Uh, so there's like places like voice actors, voice acting club or casting call club or uh, that kind of nature. So it's just like starting with those kind of resources will be a good start for aspiring voice actors. Amazing. Well, yeah, we'll make sure to uh, capture those links and everything in the, certainly the Patreon bonus that'll come out next week, everybody. But uh, we'll, we'll definitely pick one or two to add to the regular episode notes. Great. And uh, what about you and your upcoming work? Anything you want to plug? Where can people find you? It's funny with voiceover work that it's, a whole bunch of NDAs. So I have a bunch of NDAs, <laughs> a lot of NDAs coming, a bunch of dubs and a major, major video game coming out maybe next year. We'll see. Who knows? But in terms of on-camera stuff, uh, I have a horror film that I'm a lead directed by Spider-One that's coming out on Shutter August 1st. It's called Allegoria. So that is something I have coming up in on-camera world and in voiceover world will be... Yeah, basically a whole bunch of NDAs. <laughs> so so follow Edward on Twitter, and I'm sure once those clear, yes. you will be the first to know. Yes. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Edward. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs, who are our $10 supporters on Patreon. That's Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, 
Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we'll be discussing the craft of adaptations with special guests Sinead and Sean Persaud. Be sure to tune in.